Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. The pancreas, what exactly does this organ do and can you live without one? How come by the time you find out something's wrong with it, doctors always mention that it might be too late to fix it? Are there ways to know if your pancreas is working properly? Well, today we're going to find out. Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy Center is in the studio. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes, 941-3689 on Oahu, or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, last week we spoke about genetics, and the Supreme Court did make their decision on the question about patents on DNA, or genetic material. Basically, if it occurs in nature, it cannot be patented. If it's created in a lab or manipulated in a lab, and it's something that does not occur in nature, a patent can be obtained. After the announcement, several different laboratories stated they will start the process of developing tests to detect the BRCA genes, formerly a test only done by Myriad Genetics, and other labs want to make this test more accessible to the general public. At the Endocrine Society meeting in San Francisco, one researcher reported on the need to eat breakfast, noted that skipping meals can lead to an acute insulin resistance situation. What does this mean to those without diabetes? Well, it means if you don't eat, you might be altering your metabolism for the rest of the day and not for the better. Insulin resistance is one of the pre-stages before somebody develops diabetes. Now, it's even more pronounced for those people who are diabetic, as other studies have shown. Eating breakfast can help to stabilize blood sugar. The bottom line, get up early, take time for a healthy breakfast, even if it means not hitting that snooze bar for five more minutes. Now, what to eat? Well, in the latest issue of the journal, the American Medical Association, a preliminary link was made with eating red meat on a regular basis and having a greater risk for developing diabetes. Over 150,000 people, both men and women, were followed for about 12 or 15 years in what's called a cohort study. It was found that those who had high red meat consumption did increase their risk of developing diabetes significantly, in some cases by over 45%. But is meat the culprit, or is it maybe the saturated fat? Further studies are ongoing to help determine if this result is reproducible in additional research studies. The pancreas, what does it do after all? Can we live without one? Is it just one of those vital organs we have to have to stay healthy? When do you know if it's not working right? Well, Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy Center is in the studio. We'd like to hear from you at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Wong, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. I'm happy to have you back. You were here a while back. We talked about reflux, I think it was, stomach troubles. So now we're talking about an organ kind of in the same area, the pancreas. Where is it and what does your pancreas do? The pancreas is an organ that is located in our upper abdomen, so it's right behind the stomach. It's in a space called the retroperitoneum. So the peritoneum is our abdominal cavity, 
And so the pancreas lies behind that cavity. Uh, it's at the same level as the stomach, and it crosses our upper abdomen. So it's both kind of a little right. horizontal. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's the shape of a comma. It looks like a comma that's lying on its side, and um, it has different portions to it. We consider uh, the head of the pancreas, the body, and the tail. The tail of the pancreas is over near our spleen, which is on the left upper side of the abdomen. And then the head is over by the liver, which is on the right side of the abdomen. Uh, The pancreas has two broad functions. So we divide it into exocrine functions and endocrine functions. The endocrine functions are what a lot of people are familiar with, like diabetes. So it makes, uh, or excuse me, it makes uh, insulin. So that's important with uh, diabetic control. Um, But it also makes several different hormones that the body utilizes. The uh, exocrine function is more towards digestion. So the pancreas makes several different enzymes that help us digest all the three main components of our diet. So fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. So it sounds like it's pretty important. You couldn't really live without one. Or could you? You, Yeah, it's difficult to live without one. There are people that have had their pancreas removed totally for uh, for specific diseases. Uh, and it it leads to a lot of problems, as you can imagine. So those patients are very difficult to control diabetics. Um, they have problems with their digestion, of course. So it's, it is it is potentially an organ you can live without, but it's a difficult life. It's a, it's a major change in your lifestyle. So if you, if you can keep it healthy, it's a good plan. Yes, absolutely. Keep your pancreas happy. Right. What can we do to keep the pancreas happy? I guess that alludes to the fact what causes it to be unhappy. So are there some lifestyle things? We sort of touched on diabetes because your pancreas produces insulin. And insulin is what helps sugar get into the cells of your body where it's needed. So you can take insulin if you need extra. If your pancreas doesn't work the way that it should, you might be in a situation where you need that supplement. So clearly, having high sugars pancreas not happy. What other lifestyle things could somebody do that would make their pancreas not happy? Does alcohol have any effect? Yes. uh, Alcohol is a big, uh, big insult to the pancreas. Um, Just insulting that pancreas. Yes. I don't care about you. I'm going to drink, drink, drink. Okay. So what happens when you drink and how does that affect the pancreas? So you, if, if you drink a significant amount, it's usually um, uh, patients or People that drink every single day, that's the most classic scenario, but, um, and in large amounts, um, you can develop uh, inflammation of the pancreas. So that is something called the acute pancreatitis. Um, and if you drink persistently for a long period of time, you can develop something called chronic pancreatitis. So that is uh, scarring of the pancreas. And then uh, we, that in turn can lead to significant dysfunction of, of the pancreas. Um, besides alcohol, so smoking is also a major uh, a major risk factor for developing pancreatic disease, and the most most common th- or the most thing we're familiar with is pancreatic cancer, so uh, uh, tumors of the pancreas. We hear about that. You know, Steve Jobs had one of those. He had a particular type of tumor, I think a neuroendocrine tumor. Most people know if if somebody has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, usually it's because it's advanced because. Given the location of the pancreas, you don't always get an opportunity to feel symptoms. It can kind of hide out in there, no matter what it is. Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, most patients that develop pancreatic cancer present late in their clinical course. So the stage that they're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer is is higher. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to cure. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so um, the organ, uh, when it develops a tumor, it can be silent for some time. And then when it gets large enough, then they develop symptoms. And those symptoms might be back pain, so, indigestion, what yeah, kind well, of stuff? For pancreatic cancers, what the, the main symptoms that we see, so jaundice is a, a common symptom. So that's when the tumor usually develops in the head of the pancreas, so over by the liver. So it compresses the uh, duct that drains the liver and the gallbladder. And what that leads to is a, a symptom that we call jaundice, and that is yellowing of the skin and the eyeballs. Uh, patients develop abdominal pain or, or back pain. Uh, that can be a very troublesome symptom, very difficult to manage. Uh, and then weight loss is another big warning sign. So those those are the main three. There are several other symptoms that we sometimes see, but those are probably the main three symptoms that that would concern us about pancreatic cancer. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here with Dr. Robert Wong. We're talking about the pancreas. If you've ever been told you have a pancreatic problem, we'd love to hear from you. How did you figure this out, and what were your symptoms and how do you feel now? You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Wong, when we talk about the pancreas and we talk about some of its functions, you mentioned endocrine functions. So we talked about, you know, it produces insulin and other hormones, exocrine functions so that it releases digestive enzymes. You know, I kind of like to think of the pancreas and the common bile duct and the gallbladder. It's kind of like the H1-H2 merge, you know. So Mm -hmm. you eventually all get on H1 if you're coming in towards town. But when H2 and H1 merge together, you know, if you've got a traffic accident, that's going to block up things on H2 and H1 and maybe even further beyond that. So when we talk about people who have a problem with their pancreas, but it's somehow related to their gallbladder, how does that how does that translate? Somebody can have a gallstone. It can get in the way of this duct. It can actually block traffic or block bile. Is that why they start to turn a little yellow? Is that one of those reasons why they get that jaundice color we talk about? Yeah, that that is one potential way. So <clears throat> the gallbladder stores our bile. And uh, when we need the bile, uh, our body has mechanisms to release that bile from the gallbladder. And then that travels down the bile duct and uh, merges with the duct that drains the pancreas, so like the H1H2 merge. The H1H2 merge. merge, there you go, yeah. And then they empty into the small intestine. And so hopefully quickly right. without any traffic. Exactly. Okay. So that is timed. Our body is amazing in that it times it uh, specifically to when it needs digestion. So when you eat food and it uh, enters the intestine, those uh, uh, the pancreatic enzymes in the bile are, are are timed to release at that point. So if that if the bile duct gets blocked either by a gallstone or again a tumor can block that bile duct, um, then patients can uh, can develop the jaundice. The bile will back up uh, like a traffic jam, and it will enter our bloodstream. And patients will notice that in their skin. Sometimes their urine they'll notice that it gets really dark, like almost like a we call it tea colored urine. And because the bile is not going into the intestine where it should be, some patients note that their the the stool, the bowel movement, is a different color. It's usually a pale, pale, a pale color. So if you notice one of your family members, they're turning yellow. They're getting weird colored urine, weird colored stool, and they're just you know progressively looking like not tan but literally yellow. That's a sign of trouble. They should get that checked out. Definitely, there are other. 
There's other reasons for it, sure. But But no matter what, I figure if you you turn yellow, go get checked out because that's not your normal color. And it is interesting. I think uh, a lot of patients that I see with with jaundice, it's usually the family member that notices it. The patient, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they're looking in the mirror. Well, you see yourself every day. Yeah, exactly. I don't look so good today. (laughs) All right, let me, uh, you know, get it together. So you're right. I mean, usually somebody else might notice. Yeah. I've had some some people come see me, and I go, "Did anyone tell you you're yellow?" Well, no, not really. And I'm thinking. Really? Okay, so we've got to check this out. And luckily, under those circumstances, it's usually been okay. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Paul from Kailua. Paul, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha, folks. Aloha. Just a quick quick question. I'll take the answer off the air. Is there a uh, particular test that you can request of your physician for pancreatic cancer? Good question, Paul. And uh, that's something that I hear quite a lot because... We often worry about tumors like that, and because it usually gets detected when it's advanced, you want to know, do you have it or do you not? Um, You know, Dr. Wong, pancreatic cancer, is there an easy test to see if you have it? And we don't generally screen for it because it's so rare, but is there a test? It's kind of hard question. That's a good question, Paul. Um, There there is not a great test, I can tell you. Um, The reason is, well... One of the reasons is that it, yeah, it's a rel- like Dr. Kozak was saying, is relatively uncommon cancer to get. So we don't really have any screening modalities like we do for colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. I'm glad it's not cancer. more common. On the one right. hand, I'm glad we don't have a lot more <clears throat> pancreas cancer. But unfortunately, that means that we don't have the ability to study enough of those folks to develop some kind of marker. Correct. So if you develop symptoms that are concerning for pancreatic cancer, uh, there are tests to make that diagnosis. And we usually rely on... So blood tests are kind of our initial battery of tests that we obtain. So we obtain measurements of like your bilirubin, which is the bile. Um, and uh, then we usually proceed with some type of imaging test, so some type of X-ray. And that can range from a simple ultrasound of the abdomen to more sophisticated testing like CAT scans or MRIs of the abdomen. Um and those will usually, but not always, uh, show a tumor if there is a tumor in the in the pancreas. Um, there is a blood test that is commercially available, and it's been around for a long time, and it's called uh, CA19-9. And that is a protein that is released by pancreatic cancers sometimes, but not always, and that is measurable in the blood. Um, it's it's a, a, a marker that... Unfortunately, it's not really reliable, and it can be elevated in situations where people do not have pancreas cancer, and it can be normal in situations where people have pancreas cancer. So I preferentially do not use it a lot in terms of making a diagnosis. I use it more for patients that I know have pancreatic cancer. We're treating them, and we're using it as a marker to follow them. So we like to see a decrease, obviously, when you're treating the pancreatic cancer and hopefully normalize. And then when you're when you're following that patient, if it bumps up, then you're concerned that maybe it has recurred. Well, and it sounds like, you know, and again, Paul, what a great question. Thanks for asking that because 
that's something that's on a lot of people's minds. And there's some other tests that we know, you know, people talk about a CA-125. Should they have that checked for ovarian cancer? And again, part of the trouble with some of these tumor markers is that it could be high but not be cancer. It could be normal and still be cancer. So because it's not very specific or very sensitive, we can't really use it as a broad screening measure. And that's what I think gets troublesome to a lot of folks because they figure, well, if the cancer produces it, why can't I test it? And if it's negative, then I don't have a tumor. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so, you know, we have to look at these situations individually. So you mentioned that if you have symptoms, of pancreatic cancer, more testing will be done. Well, let's review some of those symptoms. We talked about turning yellow. That's certainly a cause for concern. It may not be from cancer, but if you turn yellow, you get it checked out no matter what the cause. And what are some of the other ones? Uh, The abdominal pain. So you have pain in that area, kind of right around where, you know, we call it the epigastrum, kind of below the rib cage, kind of above the belly button area. You just feel this pain. Now, is it sometimes, can people mistake it for like heartburn pain that just doesn't go away? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it can feel like an ulcer, heartburn pain, um, gallbladder pain. So if you Uh, have that and you get treated and it still doesn't go away and you keep treating and keep treating it, time to get something checked out. Yes. That's when we talk about some of those imaging studies. Also, you know, the pain, if it if it travels or radiates, we call it, to, to your back, um, it's a little bit more indicative of pancreatic pain. Um, and again, the weight loss, I, I, I see that. Uh, that always alarms me. So when patients come in, they have unexplained weight loss, even if, you know, 5, 10 pounds, um, and they're not trying to lose weight, uh, it, always, it always concerns me. So that's another cause for concern. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We've got Brian from Kailua. We've got some Kailua folks today. So, all right, uh, all right it's your hometown. Brian, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. What can we do for you today? Well, I, had, uh, I was in the hospital for pancreatitis um, twice, actually, and they said it was inflammation of the pancreas, but they couldn't tell me if there was scarring. They said it's really hard to tell if scarring occurs. So I was just wondering if there's a definite way to tell the difference, whether it's acute pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis? Great question, Brian. Excellent question, because you're right, there is a difference, and sometimes it's hard to know when you have an acute attack, is it going to be chronic? But Dr. Wong, if you see somebody like Brian, there he is, he's in the hospital, his pancreas is inflamed. How do you know if it's acute or chronic or a little bit of both? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very difficult clinical challenge that we have. Um, Usually with acute pancreatitis, the patient has uh, abrupt onset of symptoms, lasts for a period of time, usually it can be days to weeks, sometimes longer in complicated cases, uh, and then their symptoms get better. And uh, there may be an identifiable cause that is fixed and they never get pancreatitis again, or there may be a cause that is not identified and unfortunately um, they can be at risk for future acute pancreatitis. Um, Chronic pancreatitis at least uh, clinically, is Im- uh, important when patients develop pain that is persistent and lasts for a long time and doesn't really go away. And sometimes they'll have these other manifestations, like they'll develop diabetes or they'll develop problems with digestion because their pancreas isn't making the enzymes. But um, usually what I uh, – trying to figure out if patients have scarring, you know, that generally implies that it's not – reversible it's, it's a permanent scar to the to the pancreas it can be extremely difficult we do have um, some imaging tests can pick up 
things, uh, findings that would be consistent with chronic pancreatitis. For example, sometimes you have these things called calcifications that develop in the pancreas. That's a very telltale sign that you have chronic pancreatitis. It's actually what we consider pathognomonic, so it makes the diagnosis. Uh, but a lot of patients with chronic pancreatitis do not have calcifications. So what do you do in those patients? Well, um, if they're having symptoms, so I usually say, okay, if you're having symptoms that are persistent with chronic pancreatitis, you can use either more sophisticated imaging tests. So um, there is a procedure called endoscopic ultrasound, which looks at the pancreas in more detail. Um, there are significant shortcomings with making the diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis. You can also measure pancreatic function. So how well does it produce uh, these enzymes that help us digest. And there's ways to do that that uh, include just blood tests to test testing your stool. You can measure how much fat you put out in your stool. And sometimes that's indicative of chronic pancreatitis if, if it's really high because you're not digesting the fat. So there are some indirect ways of doing it. But it's a difficult diagnosis. All right, Brian. Well, we hope that you don't have another episode. And if you do, we hope that it goes away quickly and you don't have scarring or anything chronic. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, I'm here with Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy, and we're going to talk some more about what are some of the ways that we can image the pancreas and what kind of information can that tell us so that we can do something positive before it stops functioning. And luckily, it's not too late. So we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Acclaimed Italian pianist Ludovico Einaudi comes to echoes with his electroacoustic ensemble and plays the sometimes haunting, sometimes exuberant themes of his latest album in a time lapse. I'm John DiLibretto. Join me with Ludovico Einaudi live on Echoes Music Soundscape from PRI, Public Radio International. Tonight at 10. The HPR News Department reports aren't only on the air. Their daily reports are posted on our website. Noe Tanagawa with Arts and Culture Reports, political reporter Wayne Yoshioka's updates on the legislature, Bill Dorman's news of Asia and the Pacific, Dave Lawrence with the latest pop star interview, the HPR News Department at hawaiipublicradio.org. They're just a click away. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy. And we are talking about the pancreas, that organ that a lot of people don't know they have, but is pretty essential for digestion and blood sugar maintenance and all sorts of good things. If you've had a pancreas problem or you kind of wonder how to know if you're going to get one, you can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu. Toll free from the neighbor islands, 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine. Before the break, we were talking to Brian from Kailua. He had a great question about having an episode of inflammation of the pancreas. We call it pancreatitis, and how to know if it's going to go away for good or is it going to become a chronic problem. Dr. Wong, one of the tests you talked about was an endoscopic ultrasound. Now, there's only about you and two other docs in the island who do this test. What is this test, and when would you do it? So this is a test where an ultrasound probe is placed on the tip of an endoscope. 
uh, ultrasound is basically uh, uses sound waves. And a lot of people get what we consider transabdominal ultrasound or ultrasounds to monitor their pregnancy. It's the same concept, same technology. But when you place that ultrasound probe on the tip of a scope, and then you place that scope through someone's mouth and into the stomach under anesthesia, so they're not awake, um, you put that ultrasound probe very close to organs such as the pancreas. And what that does is um, it allows you to get lot better resolution of the pancreas because ultrasound waves they tend to deteriorate the further they away the further they are away from their target and so the it closer also, you get the yeah, better the better, the the better picture sure okay and it also avoids things that cause ultrasound waves to not transmit very well like air they don't go through air very well or bone things like that so um, when you do that, you can see the you're w- literally within a couple centimeters of the pancreas, so you get great images of the pancreas. You can see you can see the entire pancreas very well. So that allows you to see things like small tumors, and tumors that are small um, can be missed on CAT scan and MRI. So we know that, and uh, ultrasound or endoscopic ultrasound uh, lets you identify those tumors. It also allows you to do a biopsy at the same time, which is um, a, an added benefit. So uh, you can direct a needle through the scope. Uh, it's not; it doesn't go through your skin. It's all internal, and then it uh, has to go through your either your stomach or your intestine to biopsy a tumor if you see it. Um, so the most common indication for that, with regards to the pancreas, is, is suspected pancreatic tumors or known pancreatic tumors that you want to biopsy. Um, and then uh, some other conditions. Um, so sometimes we look for gallstones that are stuck in the bile duct and you can't see them on an X-ray and you're concerned that they're there, um, it, 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 it gets good images of the bile duct. Uh, sometimes for conditions like chronic pancreatitis, we'll use it. Um, pancreas cysts, we see, I, I see a ton of those, and those are um, fluid-filled, um, fluid-filled growths in the pancreas. So Usually not serious? Usually not serious, but they do have, some of them do have malignant potential, so they can transform into a cancer uh, at some time point down the road. So um, they're in, they can't be ignored, and they need to be monitored or worked up, but um, uh, uh, usually when they present, they're not of alarming quality just yet. So it's an opportunity to use this test to really make sure that it is just a cyst. It's nothing serious. I call them like little balloons full of water or fluid. And then you could do something, take good measurements, monitor it. Would you ever drain the fluid from the cyst? So what uh, I usually will, I usually do do a biopsy of the cyst. So I, I try to suck out as much of the fluid as I can. And then we send that offer test to try to determine, you know, malignant potential. Um, the, the cyst fluid in, inevitably comes back and uh, the cyst doesn't go away. There is a situation that we develop um, these inflammatory cysts. They're called pseudocysts, and that's usually in the setting of acute pancreatitis. So a subset of patients will get these pseudocysts, and they can be quite large, and they can be, uh, they can be very symptomatic, and they can linger around for a long time. So in those situations, we sometimes will drain them and try to uh, permanently get rid of them and avoid surgery, um, and that's all done through the, through the scope placed into your stomach. 
So it's pretty amazing you can do all that stuff through the scope. I mean, when you think about it, 50 years ago, it was an open procedure. That was the only way you had it taken care of. Do a big incision in the abdomen. And there's a lot of recovery time and risk associated with that. So now you can do some of these procedures, even just going through the scope. Some people are familiar with this scope because they might have had a stomach scope, uh, an upper endoscopy, or have somebody take a look in there. It's the same kind of scope, mm-hmm. and yet you're able to do all these amazing things with it. Right. So you can actually see that pancreatic opening. And yes. you can see it. I think what is the sphincter of Odie? You can see it and you can do something to it. And if there's a stone, you can go in and get it out. Yes. That typically requires um, a different type of endoscopy um, called ERCP. And ERCP allows you to actually, yes, go into go the, in and get go it into out. the duct okay. and remove the stone. So yes, you avoid uh, surgery uh, to get that out of there, which can be very complicated and morbid. And so that's something other people do. But the ultrasound portion is something you have a particular expertise in. Yes. Okay. And it's, it's more of a diagnostic uh, modality. Uh, so Figure out what's going on before you go in to do something. Right. Get as much information as possible. And maybe you don't need to do much. Exactly. So, if, okay. um, for example, if uh, you suspect someone had a gallstone stuck in the bile duct, and they had, let's say they got pancreatitis from that. Um, that's one of the more common causes of acute pancreatitis. So if uh, you suspected it, but you weren't sure because the imaging test, that, like a CAT scan that you did, wasn't clear, then you could use endoscopic ultrasound, go down there, look to see if there's a stone. Um, the other procedure I was talking about, ERCP, is a little bit more risky. Um, it can cause pancreatitis in itself. So if you can avoid that test, then it would, uh, it would be beneficial. So another way that we can gather information and cause as little harm as possible. Right. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Malachi from Kaka'ako. Malachi, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my question is about advanced uh, pancreatic cancer, a family member on the mainland. I kind of give sketchy information, so I don't have a lot of details. I guess my question is about prognosis. Uh, The diagnosis is stage 3 inoperable. Uh, pancreatic cancer, they are on chemotherapy, and, um, you know, they're saying they'll probably have years to live. When I, you know, read up on it on the Internet, it sounds like months. So I was just wondering if, um, you know, with that, those details, what you can uh, give me in a general prognostic uh, information. Yes. Um, if you look at... All comers. So when they do these studies uh, looking at – they're usually looking at chemotherapy or some type of treatment modality for patients with pancreatic cancer, and then they're they're basically looking at their survival. You know, how long do they live compared to someone that doesn't get treatment? Um, So those patients usually are – they they fit certain criteria to be able to enter the study, and they tend to be a little bit on the more – healthy side if you're if you're looking at pancreatic cancers that you know obviously they have pancreatic cancer but they tend to be a little bit healthier and able to tolerate chemotherapy so a lot does depend on the patients um what their what their status is like at the time of their diagnosis you know are they really emaciated um do they have a lot of other medical problems like heart disease lung disease um so that does factor into to survivorship overall but if you look at all comers and, and specifically with regards to studies, um, overall survival, uh, it, irrespective of, of stage, is um, usually around two years. That's a little bit short of two years. That's what the 
that the chemotherapy trials looked at. Um, okay, so stage three inoperable, <laughs> is that the most advanced? Uh, uh, st- stage four would be the most advanced. Okay. So the, the stages are one to four. And right. uh, three is usually indicative of what we consider locally advanced cancer. So the cancer has... Um, it's involving the pancreas, but it's also involving some of the probably some of the adjacent blood vessels. So that's that's the difficulty with pancreatic cancer is that to be a, what we consider surgically resectable, meaning you can remove the term tumor. That, as we know right now, that's the only treatment that offers any chance of cure. So okay. surgery, um, you cannot do that in certain situations when the tumor is wrapped around some of the major blood vessels in that area, and they're so maybe very close. That's why it's inoperable. Yes, correct. Um, and you can also have, like, lymph nodes that are away from the tumor, and sometimes that makes it inoperable. But stage 4 disease is when the tumor is actually metastasized to oh, okay. a distant site like the liver or the lungs. Um, so stage 3 uh, stage three is what we consider locally advanced. And the prognosis for that, again, it does, it does kind of vary depending on the patient, right? But it's, sure. it's, it's probably less than... It's less than two years. Just we know that from from uh, the kind of the broad category of of right. all patients. Right. Um, but uh, and you know, if metastatic disease is is less, so stage four disease is less than a year usually. So she's probably he or she is probably somewhere in between that. Right. Right. But again, I you know I, I've seen patients do very well. Um, it's amazing, uh, and they live quite some time. Right, right. Um, and I've seen, and it depends on, probably depends on their tumor characteristics. You know, some patients, some tumors respond very well to chemotherapy right. and we don't understand why some do, some don't. It, it definitely has something to do with probably the molecular profile of the tumor, but some do well, some don't. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. So if she, if he or she got a good response to chemotherapy, they might, right. they might survive for right, quite some time. You. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. All right. Thanks for calling us, Malachi, and good luck to your friend. And hopefully they'll be one of the responders to chemotherapy and have more time than we think. All right. We have another caller on the line. We have another Kailua caller. We've got Jack from Kailua. Jack, you had a question about endoscopy. Is that right? It's actually, yes, it's a form of endoscopy. It has to do with whether or not we now have the capacity for either single or double balloon endoscopies in the island. Mm. Good question, yeah, good because question. I honestly don't know what you're talking about. Dr. Yeah, Wong, so, what is a single or double balloon endoscopy? I'm going to learn something new here. What is it, and do we do it? The uh, the test is it's a good test for looking at the small intestine. So the small intestine, although it's a, it's a, it's really a misnomer, right, because the, the small intestine is really long. And that's the small, the, long intestine. Yes. Okay. So it's what connects our stomach to our colon, our large intestine. And if you stretch it out on someone, it's you know 20 feet. So... It's very narrow, but it's long. And uh, it's difficult for traditional endoscopes that we have to get into that area. Um, It requires a lot of effort, and um, it it, it can be really impossible. So historically, we used to have to rely on um, uh, basically the the patient would go to surgery, open up the patient. They'd help us push the scope down all through the small intestine. The surgeon would help us, and then we we could look in the small intestine. but uh, there is a new, there is technology. It's been out uh, probably over ten years called uh, uh, balloon enteroscopy, um, and those scopes have balloons on it, and they basically let you uh, inflate a balloon, deflate it, and it lets you kind of inch down the small intestine. And you can either go through the mouth or you can go through the colon to get to do that. 
Um, we do, uh, I do know that it is present on the island. Um, I do not do it, uh, but I believe there is a physician uh, at Queens that does it. Um, but it's not, it's not widely available. But uh, last I heard that, I think it is a single, a single balloon interoscope is available. There is I, a, the other option is a, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've had it, but it's a capsule endoscopy, which is where you swallow a pill and it transits through your small intestine and takes pictures. And then it transmits it to a, um, a device that you wear on your, on your uh, waistband. And then you can download those images to a computer and look at them. The physician looks at them and he tries to identify something in the small intestine, uh, whatever your, whatever your issue is. Um, unfortunately that's a diagnostic test. It doesn't really, uh, give, give any means to deliver therapy if, if need be. And the problem with that also is trying to locate where in that 20 feet the uh, issue was. The issue was, the, was the diagnosed there, but the location and the, the recommendation at that point was exploratory surgery, which you referred to earlier. And that was not something that my surgeon was anxious about, nor was I. And so I ended up going to um, Weill Cornell in New York to get the single balloon endoscopy. They were able to find it, and they marked each side of the tumor with indie ink so that when my surgeon went in, he was able to just, you know, cut where it was marked and take it out. Right. Yeah, good. All right, Jack. Well, thanks for calling us and sharing that experience. It sounds like you figured out a way to have the test done that you needed, and it really helped you with your procedure. So in your case, it wasn't an exploratory surgery. Hopefully it was a curative surgery, and we absolutely wish you the best with that difficult uh, time that you had. Dr. Wong, that's not a common thing. Small intestine issues with tumors, nowhere near as common as large intestine or colon. Is that right? Right, yeah, they're relatively uncommon, um, fortunately, because if they were as common as colon cancer, we would have a hard time obviously preventing them and diagnosing them like like Jack, uh, Jack was talking about. Um, so, yes, it's uh, it's fortunate that it's a relatively uncommon condition. Now, the capsule endoscopy, what you're talking <laughs> about, swallowing the, the camera pill is what they might call it, um, that actually, although you can't do anything therapeutically, you might see something and go, okay, I can tell where in the intestine it is, but I can't necessarily go do something to that area, biopsy, et cetera. It can still provide a lot of good information. How long have we had this pill camera? Mm, it's been over 10 years. Um, yeah, I, th- I believe it came out early 2000s. So uh, it's been it's been around, and there's been some improvements on it. Um, it, uh, it it when would the, we the use logical, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah so usually, so suspected tumors in the small intestine are the most common indication is bleeding that we can't. So there's identify. bleeding. We don't know where it is. Yeah, we can't identify. Okay. You've had a colonoscopy. You've had an upper endoscopy, and you think it's somewhere in between. So those those patients typically have either anemia, uh, like iron deficiency anemia, or they have visible blood that we can't we just can't find the bleeding source. So then the usually the next step is the capsule endoscopy and trying to make a diagnosis. But yeah, the problem like Jack was talking about is that um, you can't you can't deliver therapy and sometimes you don't know exactly where it is in the small intestine. It's not it's a, it does have like a GPS type system on it, but the small intestine so convoluted and tortuous, yeah. yeah that it's hard to localize exactly where that bleeding is. And then, so if, if you need to, you need to resort to one of these more invasive tests like a, a balloon enteroscopy. Or even in that case, you know, exploratory surgery. Correct. If there's really an issue. 
All right, boy, I'm learning a lot today about the pancreas, about the intestines, about some of the newest studies that we're doing for it. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here with Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the pancreas. What can we do about it? How do you know you have a problem? And if you do have a problem, how do we treat that? You can join us at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. June is National Reunification Month, and if that went right by your calendar, that could be because it's the first year we're celebrating in Hawaii. It's the month to celebrate families reunited with their foster care kids And we'll talk with a man who got his kids back after he served his time. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. One time, while holding hands at the airport, John, without thinking, kissed Eleanor's soft cheek and immediately she turned into a puff of charming whiteness that resembled a young pony leaping over a fence post. This week on Selected Shorts, Clouds, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Welcome back. This is The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak, here with Dr. Robert Wong from Pacific Endoscopy Center. And we're talking about the pancreas and about how do you know if you have a problem and what tests are available out there and what can we do locally here in the islands to help people to discover if they have a concern they need to have further addressed. Before the break, we were talking about endoscopy and some of the things that we can do here in the islands. And Dr. Wong in particular has expertise with endoscopic ultrasound, a nice way to look at the pancreas, diagnose what's going on, a little less invasive than some of the other tests that are out there. You know, when one of our callers, Dr. Wong, asked us about blood tests, and some people may be aware that the pancreas produces some enzymes called amylase and lipase. If you have inflammation of your pancreas, sometimes these numbers go up. What do these numbers tell us, and are they useful to check on a regular basis or really only if you have symptoms? Yeah, so what amylase and lipase are, they're basically enzymes that the pancreas produces. Uh, They do have a function, so they they help us with digestion, amylase with carbohydrates, and lipase with fats. Um, But they are measurable in the the blood. Uh, So we do have reference ranges, which are normal. Uh, So... In my opinion, it is often overutilized. Um, it's definitely not a routine blood test that you would get. You go to the doctor and have a, a well visit and have a checkup. And it should in that be case, checked it should or, be like yeah. cholesterol and sugar. Right. Maybe not, not something amylase like amylase because it's, it's probably not going to be something the general population yep. has to worry about. Okay. So the most, the most useful situation is when you have uh, pain that is more typical of acute pancreatitis. So that's abrupt onset of pain, usually like we talked about in the in the upper abdomen and can radiate to the back and is prolonged. So that um, that is the, the typical situation where y- you're usually in the emergency room at that point and the emergency room physician is raising the possibility of acute pancreatitis and, and they check the amylase and lipase and they're elevated. So that is the, the, the best situation for checking those enzymes. Other than that, there's, there's really not... They're really not that much clinical utility. They are used. Physicians do order them a lot. Again, I think they're overutilized. Um, patients that have kind of mild abdominal pain been going on for most of their life or for a number of years, and the amylase and lipase are checked. 
And um, unfortunately, they can come back elevated uh, to a certain degree, but it doesn't always mean that you have pancreatitis. So there's there's other reasons for that. Um, we usually like to see a specific threshold reach before we make the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis. So you don't check it all the time. If you have pain and they're high, it might not necessarily be from the pancreas hitting that point where it has inflammation, pancreatitis. Um, and generally, if you have a lot of trouble, talk with your doctor first because there could be some other tests that you may need to do first. Right. Now, sometimes people take a lot of these medications to help reduce acid in their stomach. Do those medicines cause uh, elevation of some of these enzymes or not necessarily? Um, not, ne- not necessarily. There's... Um you know, there's uh, there are other disorders that can that can cause that. So, like kidney disease, for instance, could um, increase some of these. Yeah, so um, totally not related to the right. gastrointestinal system. Right. They could be high for some other reason. Yeah, um, intestinal diseases can do it. So there's there's a there's a whole list of other of other causes of that. But typically, when we see levels that are really high, um, and patient has all symptoms the other that are symptoms. compatible okay. with it. It's it's really a good test for acute pancreatitis. They are another misconception with those enzymes is that they're they're um, the the level that they're elevated doesn't necessarily correlate with the severity of your pancreatitis. So that's often um, uh, a misconception. Uh, so you can have uh, uh, elevated enzymes that are in the let's say ten times what normal would be, and you think, oh my gosh, those enzymes are really elevated, uh, but um, uh, it might, it's not necessarily indicative of the severity of your pancreatitis. Okay, so don't freak out if the numbers are really high. And if you're starting to feel better and you and your doctor say you're getting better, chances are you'll see those numbers revert closer to normal over time. Mm-hmm. Right. right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Lisa from Hawaii Kai. Lisa, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. What can we do for you? One question. Um, I'm diabetic. And I might be going into stage 3 kidney disease, which was just recently discovered. And I don't have a lot of information on that. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about, you know, of course, if you're diabetic, it's your pancreas on that's not working well. Uh, or your body's not working well with your pancreas, you could say. And I'm just curious what the relationship is between that and, and ongoing kidney disease. Well, Lisa, it's a great question. And unfortunately, for people who have diabetes... Diabetes is a situation where your body can't handle the amount of sugar in your bloodstream effectively. So you have these wonderful cells in your pancreas, the organ we're talking about today, called beta cells. And they tend to be the ones that produce insulin. And if you don't have enough of those cells, or if the ones that you have just don't work anymore, or if they just don't exist, these cells can die, then you wind up with an elevation of your blood sugar. So the pancreas, if it's not able to produce insulin, can result in diabetes. It's a very common reason why people get diabetes. They lose these special cells that produce insulin. By the time you're diagnosed, usually about 50% of them are gone. That being said, when your diabetes starts to get really serious, if it's either very difficult to control or if you've had it for quite a few years, it can cause kidney damage. So what happens with diabetes is that unfortunately, All the extra sugar that's been in your bloodstream comes out through the kidneys, and your kidneys have these wonderful filters that get damaged, and now not only do you spill sugar in your urine, but you also spill protein. So your kidneys don't have a filter that works very well, and as that filter gets further broken down, 
you wind up with greater stages of kidney disease. So stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. In this case, there is a stage five. And in that circumstance, the best thing you can do to keep your body happier is get those sugars down. The most natural treatment for diabetes is actually insulin because that's what you're missing. So if you use insulin to treat diabetes, although it's more difficult and labor intense than taking pills, it often can help to prevent the diabetes from progressing as fast because you can get those sugars under better control. Once you get kidney disease, you're kind of heading down a path where the best thing you can do to keep your kidneys happy are to keep your sugar low, keep your cholesterol low, keep your blood pressure low. And there's some really special medications called ACE inhibitors or ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers. And these are medicines that help to repair that filter in your kidney. And if you can stop losing the protein from your urine then and into your urine from the kidney, then you can actually repair the filter and stop or slow the progression of kidney disease despite having diabetes. So. It's related to your pancreas because your pancreas kind of started it with those beta cells that are not producing insulin. But by the time it gets to the kidneys, what you want to do is do everything you can to keep your kidneys happy. Keep your sugar low, blood pressure low, keep your cholesterol low. There's some new medications that have just been researched. Maybe in about the last four to six weeks, reports have come out of some investigational medicines that in in animal models have shown to regenerate beta cells. And that's the first time we've ever heard that there's a way to bring these cells back, either grow new ones or have the old ones that weren't functioning start to work. Because if you can get the beta cells to produce insulin and you don't have a deficiency of insulin, then you can be in a situation where your kidneys are happy because the sugar's normal, so the filter works, so everything in your body works better. So they're doing some studies now to try and increase that beta cell group. But, you know, until that becomes more commercially available, your best bet right now is insulin, good blood pressure, good sugars, good cholesterol, and the filter fixers. Those, they're actually blood pressure medicines called ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And you get that collection set and you're going to help your kidneys long term. Mm. And is there anything you can do in terms of diet or like drinking lots of lemon juices, things like that that are natural cleansers? Will they help much with this? With your kidneys? Yeah. Um, You know, not necessarily. We have to be careful. Drinking water is good because kidneys love water, so you want to do that. Um, There are some preliminary studies that look at having citrus-based things like lemon or even orange, but again, you have to balance the effect of sugar in that with the effect of the sugar on your diabetes and on your the rest of your body. So the best thing to do to talk about keeping your kidneys happy is talk with a nephrologist or a kidney specialist because they're really going to be able to give you dietary hints, some some supplements that you might want to consider, talk with you about monitoring some other things in your body, like calcium levels and phosphorus levels, and really get you started on a road for good health for your kidneys. So you may want to talk with a nephrologist sooner rather than later so that you can take some proactive ideas now and really take action to make sure that this doesn't get worse. Okay. Thank you very much for your help. You are so welcome, Lisa, and I wish you luck. Dr. Wong, it's pancreas. It's kind of related. Pancreas started it. But once we get into a situation with diabetes, now I remember hearing in medical school years ago, and this is always difficult for folks, because if you suddenly get diabetes when you're older, 
and it's like, you know, within three months, that could be a sign of a pancreas issue. Be careful. But on the other hand, given the percentage of people that now have diabetes, we're seeing a lot of folks get diabetes as they get older. And it's not related to their pancreas and having a tumor. It's just related to age-related changes and dietary changes that are increasing the rates of diabetes throughout. Mm -hmm. Is there a way when somebody is older and gets diabetes, is there a certain type or a certain speed for which you might be more suspicious of a pancreatic tumor? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that we see in some pancreatic cancers. So patients will realize, oh, I, I, I was diagnosed with diabetes six months ago or three months ago. And uh, you look at them, and they're not the typical patient that you would think would have diabetes. So, yeah, it is a small subset of the population of diabetics that actually have a pancreatic cancer. I, it does alarm you when the patient uh, has a lot of weight loss, for example. Um, they're not the typical uh, body habitus or, or body type that would develop uh, type 2 diabetes, um, and they have no family history of diabetes, for instance, uh, and then they have symptoms that are concerning. So, um, not that common. Not that common, but it it is it an interesting can happen. Thing that we see. Yeah, yes. yeah. I think I've seen it once in the last fourteen years. And how many times have I diagnosed diabetes in people right. when they're older? You know, probably hundreds, if not thousands, of times. And one time, that's what it was. Right. Yep. All right. Well, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Joe on the line from Maui. Joe, welcome to the Body Show. Thank you. What can we do for you? I'm, this is something I'm going through right now. Uh, started last week where I had double vision and a, sort of a real strong vagal response. And so they've done, you know, brain studies and heart arrhythmia um, studies. Um, and it's neither one of those two. And so now they're going to go on the GI track. And I, since the pancreas is part of the GI track, I'm wondering if I could learn what the vagal response has to do with the GI track. Hmm. Good question, Joe, you know, because it sounds like you've had some real difficult symptoms. And, you know, there's this nerve called the vagus nerve. Oh, with an S, okay. Yeah, well, vagal symptoms oh, okay. um, describe a problem where, you know, sometimes you'll feel this double vision, you'll get really dizzy, you'll suddenly feel like, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to pass out and you're like, what am I going to do? They often also call it sometimes a vasovagal response. So you stand up too quickly and you just don't feel well. And are you having some type of a problem with your blood pressure, which is why they go searching for your heart and also with your brain. So they go looking at blood flow there. You know, if nothing else, sometimes there are some things that can grow in the GI tract and they, they produce these hormones that cause you to have similar symptoms. They might be looking for that. It's kind of hard to say, you know, because yeah. it's a difficult thing. Luckily, you know, if you've had your heart checked out, that's number one. You know, we usually check out big bad things first. So heart and brain, really essential. Check those out first, and you did. So now they're going on what Dr. Wong and I might call a bit of a fishing expedition, trying to find other possible causes for you to have these symptoms. And there are some rare cases, Dr. Wong, you've heard about this, where people have some hormone secreting things in their intestines that can cause some of these issues. And I hate to use the word tumor because most people make uh, a tumor equivalent to cancer. It's not necessarily the case. Um, but there, there's something we call carcinoid, and, and that's one of the things they might be looking for, sudden release of hormones that make you feel weird, and it's usually into your GI tract. There's some other possible things that are related, but at this point, they ruled out the bad stuff, Joe, so that's why they're, they're looking for some other possible reasons. Thanks so much. All right. Well, good luck to you, and, and certainly, I wish you the best of luck doing this evaluation, and I hope 
They find nothing and all your symptoms resolve and you start to feel great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling us. Dr. Wong, we hear about that sometimes, you know. There are weird things that can happen in your intestines. There's, what, 20 feet of small intestine. About how many feet of large intestine? About another uh, yeah, about, 8, 10? Uh, yeah, anywhere from, depending on the person, but anywhere like 4 to four to 6 feet, I usually say. Okay. So, so you're looking at almost... 30 feet of, of intestines, yes. you know, small and large to try and get through. That's a huge distance. I mean, I don't think people realize lots of things can happen in and around those areas that can cause troubles. Right. Absolutely. And, and in that situation, you know, we talked about the pancreas and doing this endoscopic ultrasound. We talked about the balloon studies, but it's really hard other than the capsule study to take a close look at all of those intestines. Yes, it can be. Yeah. It's, um, it's it can be very difficult to see the small intestine. That's always been our Achilles heel, I think. Um, you know, I, I think the way our bodies were designed, uh, it, it just makes it difficult to see that. But again, yeah, fortunately, um, the bad things like like cancers we rarely see in the small intestine. So we're fortunate in that regards. Now, the small intestine pretty important function. It does a lot of the absorption of food. Yes. So yeah, the small intestine is really a, a kind of the workhorse of our of our digestive system. It does. Again, does most of the that's where most of our digestion takes place, and that's where most of the absorption of our nutrients takes place. And that's where the pancreas dumps its enzymes, those digestive mm-hmm. enzymes, yes. into that small intestine, into the the very area very close to where the stomach is. We call it, you know, the duodenum, and so it, it sends those enzymes to the right area to break up the food so that we can digest it better. Right. So overall, pancreas, we need it. Hard to live without it. And if you think you have symptoms that concern you, let's just review those real quick so people don't forget. We talked about the yellow color. Get yes, that checked out. Right. And pain, particularly where exactly? In the upper abdomen. Yeah. So kind of right around your stomach area. Maybe that ulcer sort of symptom that just never goes away despite trying to treat it Correct. with all of those anti-ulcer medications. Right. And if it radiates towards the back. Yes. That's a little bit more indicative of pancreatic source. And so- then it- yeah, sorry. Uh, unexplained weight loss was the other one. And then suddenly, hey, I'm losing weight. I don't know why. Right. So symptoms of concern. Mm-hmm. And if you are taking medicine for your stomach for extra acid and you take it for a long time and nothing seems to work, talk to your doctor. Make sure that you explain your symptoms. They'll probably go looking around the pancreas. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. One of those things that, you know, that's why they put that label on there. Don't take over-the-counter mm-hmm. medicines right, for more for than two weeks. Let your doctor know because it could be a sign of something serious that you're going to miss. Yes. Yeah, and, I, you know, I tell I tell patients to be persistent if the symptoms aren't getting better um, with some therapy that was recommended and you're taking it and you're just not getting better, then, you know, it's time to, to, to be aggressive and go see your doctor again and see what additional tests have needed need to be done. Sure, and if everything looks okay... Okay, you can take the medicine, but you might be finding out that there's something else that you need to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, and amylase and lipase, blood tests that are something you can do, but generally not recommended for everybody, not a good way to try and assess your pancreas and whether or not it functions. Right, correct, yes. They're, they're, I think they're, they're good for a specific instance where acute pancreatitis needs to be evaluated. And be careful, don't drink too much. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Be nice to your pancreas because you need it. Yeah, be good to your body. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Wong, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. 
Dr. Robert Wong is practicing at Pacific Endoscopy Center, which is close to the Polymomi Hospital. He has particular expertise in endoscopic ultrasound, and he's been here in the islands for about the last five years. Hopefully, hopefully forever, Dr. Wong, we need you here. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on www.hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can look up what the next show is going to be about. Our engineer today is David Chong. Our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk about essential oils. Are they really that essential for you after all? We're going to talk about that and more Monday at 5. We'll see you right here on The Body Show. Woo!